A small, agile nation takes advantage of an unprecedented window of opportunity, and as that startup nation's influence quickly spreads throughout the Holy Land, it gains the begrudging admiration of its neighboring frenemy states. Sound familiar? Of course, I'm not talking about the modern state of Israel's high-tech scene, but the ancient Israelites' foundation of the biblical united monarchy some 3,000 years ago. It's exactly the time when uh, uh, things changed dramatically. The Egyptian empire that was uh, the ruler of the region collapsed. So the stabilizing force that was here to, you know, uh, make sure that these nomads do not uh, interfere and do not disrupt the trade and the livelihood of the city-states, this force was not here anymore. That's Tel Aviv University professor Erez Ben Yosef, the head of the ongoing Timna Valley archaeological expedition. While excavating at Timna, he realized that it was not the ancient Egyptian empire that ruled the copper mines at their prime, but rather the Edomites, a nomadic biblical kingdom. This led Erez to propose a theory that the beginnings of the united monarchy under King David, as described in the Bible, were also nomadic and equally complex. So if true, his theory on a nomadic, largely tent-dwelling kingdom would explain why there is a general lack of architectural evidence of grand palaces during this Iron Age era. So this week, as the Jewish people return to temporary dwellings throughout the festival of Sukkot, I, Amanda Boisheldan, ask Professor Erez Ben Yosef, what matters now? The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Erez, thank you so much for joining me here today. My pleasure. You know, when I was driving over here to Jerusalem's Nomi Studios, I saw a bunch of cars with all sorts of materials on their roofs, including metal posts and bamboo pillars and all sorts of things for the Sukkot, which is our holiday that's approaching this week. So I wonder, in this week in which Jews all over the world put up impermanent structures ahead of the festival of Sukkot, I ask you, Erez, what matters now? And why should we care about what mattered thousands of years ago? If we try to understand the origin of our people, of the the Jewish people, the nomadic aspect, the nomadic part, the, the period where we lived in Sukkot or tents, is crucial to understand our history and to understand us today even. 
Excellent. So right now, I would like to set up the chessboard, the chessboard of 3,000 years ago, as you said. Yeah. So what is happening geopolitically right then? So we're talking about the Exodus, and then after that, we have the conquest of Canaan, and then we have the periods of the judges, and then we have the first monarchy. So 3,000 years ago is about the time of King David and King Saul before King David, the first monarchy that uh, the Jewish people ever had. Wasn't there some kind of power vacuum happening back then? In fact, uh, people who were ruling the area were all of a sudden not ruling the area, and, and perhaps we were exhibiting some of our startup Israel tendencies already way back then? It's exactly the time when uh, uh, things changed dramatically. The Egyptian empire that was uh, the ruler of the region collapsed. They had their own problems and they didn't come back to the region anymore around the mid-12th century uh, BC. So the stabilizing force that was here to, you know, uh, make sure that these nomads do not uh, interfere and do not disrupt the uh, trade and the uh, livelihood of the city-states, uh, this force was not here anymore. So this is a very interesting period in the history of the land where we have many changes. Um, and we do know that uh, a lot of uh, the local kingdoms, not only the Israelites, but also the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, uh, came from a nomadic background. So this is kind of a consensus. All scholars agree that we came from a tent-dwelling tradition. The Sukkot, the huts, uh, the, you know, that you can, uh, the in, impermanent huts that you can take and move, etc., or the tents is something that is inherent to our culture. But nevertheless, most scholars, or all scholars, coming with the Western perception of what it means to be nomads today, like uh, the Bedouins, uh, the accepted notion was that before everybody settled down and moved to live in permanent houses, you cannot talk about a kingdom, you cannot talk about a king, you cannot talk about a, a, something significant happening in the region. And, and this is a, a big problem because when you uh, go back to the text and you read about the kings of uh, the Edomites or even uh, Saul and David and you immediately try to look for their uh, capital, for their uh, stone-built palace and you don't find it, so the conclusion has to be that it's not a history, that it's not true, that it was all invented many years later than the events that uh, the, the, the story describes. And I think here we have a big uh, mistake as scholars, as uh, people that uh, try to understand the real history behind the texts, uh, and our assumption that only settled society can create a kingdom is uh, false, is something that we have, it comes from our background as Western, part of Western society, uh, is for the culture of the cities, about uh, the urban society, about people being settled as a prerequisite for any cultural advancement. So you gave me a lot of homework before our conversation, and there were a lot of very nice, huge words in some of the texts that you gave me. And one of them I just had to say out loud, it is 
sedentarocentrism, <laughs> which is an amazingly long word, great for Scrabble, anyone who's listening. What does that mean? A sedentary, a sedentary society is a society that is settled down. And centrocentrism means that we always look on the history from the perspective of the ones that settled down, meaning that we always have some bias against the lowly nomads. Um, and this is really, really fundamental because when we think about uh, a king in the Bible, we all read verses of the Bible uh, and uh, every week and also now we are going to the synagogue and we read a lot of descriptions and we uh, hear about kings, whether it's the Israelite kings or the Midianite kings, let's say the, in the book of Judges, we hear about the Midianite kings. Immediately we think about a sedentary king, meaning that he sits in a city surrounded by walls and he has a palace with uh, made of stones. Uh, this is what we have in our imagination. But it doesn't have to be like that. If you go back to the text, you can see uh, explicitly uh, in certain places that some of these kings dwelled in tents. And uh, this is very important because I'm an archaeologist. So we are trying to look for tangible remains that we can study. And these tent-dwelling kings did not leave behind much for us to find. And if we, ha we only have this image of a, a, you know, a sedentary king uh, and we don't find it, we will have to assume that it didn't exist. And it really uh, affects our interpretation of the biblical texts. And this was from the beginning of uh, biblical scholarship, even before archaeology got into the picture. In the 18th century Europe, in Germany, think about these scholars trying to imagine the nomad of the Bible, the guys that sat in Sukkot and stuff. So what they had in their possession is the description of the Bedouins in the Ottoman Empire that were on the one hand very exotic, romantic place deep in the desert, uh, remote from Europe, very exotic, very attractive. But on the other hand, it were they were the people that you needed to pay bakshish in order to cross their land and a very dangerous place and people that object the central rule of the Ottoman Empire. So, so on the one hand, very exotic and attractive. On the other hand, it imposes a very specific interpretation about the political and social capabilities of these people that really went directly to the interpretation of the biblical texts without even the, uh, the, the possibility to think for a moment about other options that nomads 3,000 years ago were completely, completely different than the Bedouins of today. Uh, and that in this particular time in the history of the land, this was the time when the, they had the upper hand. And with, in, in this particular time, while, while still, still being tribal and nomadic, they achieved a lot of political power and actually they were the ones that ruled the city-states, the Canaanite city-states, and not the other way around. This is perfectly um, in agreement with the biblical description. And um, in recent years, we also have some archaeological proof for these powerful nomads in this particular period in the history of the region. 
Okay, so we're going to definitely talk about that. But what you're saying essentially sounds to me like people have a very hard time. Western scholars have a very hard time divorcing the noble savage uh, archetype from the Bedouin ideology, from the idea of a nomadic Davidic kingdom. And yet... The Bible doesn't seem to have a problem with this idea. In fact, there's so many uh, verses, how great are your tents, all sorts of things like that, Machanaim, the two camps that, w- that we hear about, of course, describing the very thing that you're talking about, a nomadic camp lifestyle. And of course, you don't have many remains. There's no plastic left over from the tents <laughs> that right. survived 3,000 years, though you have found some very interesting remains in Timna, which is your, your, your place of... Uh, uh, excavation primarily. But I would like to just also add in uh, some of the other things I learned through your essays, which is, of course, that even back in ancient Greece, there was a historian who kind of had a premonition that that this would be the case in future generations, that those who describe Sparta might not exactly describe it how it was. Thucydides, who who described Sparta. But there are other examples from other places, such as, of course, Genghis Khan, the great Genghis Khan, the Mongol ruler who rode on his horses and caused havoc. And yet there's an archaeologist at Hume University whose name escapes me right now, who does a lot of work on uh, describing his fortresses that here and there were indeed built, though he had this nomadic lifestyle. Yeah, so, so um, in the history of the world, uh, nomads were probably usually not very, uh, n- not always part of a kingdom or an empire. Maybe the Bedouin example is something that is relevant to understand the nomads uh, in a common way. But we have to remember that there were instances in the history of the world that we know that nomads created uh, uh, huge kingdoms, even empires like the. Mongol Empire, for example, or even the Nabataean Kingdom that started as a nomadic kingdom before they built their monuments in Petra. They had kings while still living in tents and uh, being nomadic. So we can say that in the world history, we do have examples of these exceptional uh, cases of nomads creating kingdoms. And I believe that the early Iron Age was exactly this kind of a period not only because of the biblical description, which tells us about nomads creating a kingdom, but also uh, because this is a unique period in the history of the place of the of Israel. And uh, we have more and more evidence that this was also because of dramatic climatic change, much more dry climate. And this is also something that gives an advantage to uh, mobile people that can move if the, dwell, if the well is uh, dry, you can move uh, in contrast to the settled people that if the well is dried, they, they are lost and they are much weaker. So I think uh, if we look at the long history of the, of the region, it is exactly the time when the nomads could have accumulated power in an unprecedented way uh, that we don't have any examples for it before or after this specific period. Uh, and um, we have to think about them m- much differently than what we are used to. Even the Bible itself bothers to tell us that one tribe, the Rechabites, the sons of the Rechabites, uh, they dwelt in tents all the way to the end of the period, to the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem. So 
people, some of the families, some of the tribes were still dwelling in tents all along the period that we are talking about, which in archaeology is the Iron Age. And my claim is that uh, it was a very, very gradual process. And uh, in contrast to what people have, uh, scholars and other people have uh, in mind, that as soon as they got into the land of Canaan, uh, you know, Joshua and uh, the judges, all uh, the people settled down and got into uh, homes, uh, etc. Maybe it's something that we think about as people living in cities, that as soon as, as a nomad can get into a stone structure, they will do it. But it's not true. It's a cultural transmission. It's, it's a cultural uh, transition that is very, very uh, slow. We can see it even today with a lot of Bedouins that do not, that are not willing to uh, live in permanent houses in the in our modern days. Even though they may have a satellite dish on the roof of their tin hut. <laughs> exactly. And even if they are forced to move into stone buildings, they always keep the tent outside. So it takes many generations for the entire population to settle down. So we think about the uh, tribes of Israel coming into Canaan uh, and then uh, settling down. And we really um, accept that this was a long process. So definitely during the time of David and Solomon, a lot of the people, maybe most of the people, still lived in tents, which we cannot see and we cannot study as archaeologists. And then we cannot really estimate the size of the population. And my colleagues sometimes, they say, you know, we have only such and such, let's say, 4,000 people around the area of Judah. And this cannot hold a big, huge kingdom. But how do archaeologists count 4,000 people? They count the visible structures, so only the permanent, only the settled population. But if this is only a fragment of a much bigger picture, it means that we were looking, as you say, under the streetlight. So you, you, you are focusing on what you can see, but you forget that there is so much behind that you can't see uh, of these people, other people that were will, will still living in tents. And if you understand that these were not necessarily these uh, lowly nomads or the Bedouins and people that can still be very powerful, uh, this is a, a game changer. And I think that it is some of these aspects are still part of our culture today, e even if it's in prayers and uh, the holidays like the Sukkot and other things that we have in uh, the Jewish religion that uh, is coming from this nomadic and kind of modest background. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like, my friend has a 4x4. Four four. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their, like, blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. 
check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. How did I come all to all of that? It's not because I one day w- woke up and I thought differently about the nomads. We all come from this background of thinking about the Bedouins and, and, and have a, a very specific uh, perception of, of these people. I happened to work in the copper mines in the south, in the Arava, in Jordan for many years, as part of the American expedition there, and then my own expedition in Timna, next to Elant. We all know Timna, if we visit Israel, it's a beautiful park, and we see there uh, thousands of ancient copper mines, and also smelting sites, where copper was produced in furnaces. And we have a lot of archaeology. I excavate every year in the winter and we find fantastic stuff. And this is all part of the waste of the industry, industrial waste of broken furnaces and slag and uh, and bellows and all of the things that they needed for the smelting process. This is amazing stuff that before we came to Timna, Uh, it was accepted by everybody that it was only the Egyptian empire that could have done all of this amazing uh, project back uh, then, 3,300 years ago. Because it was so organized and so high-tech for the era. Exactly. So organized, you have to make many people, hundreds of people, to work for you, for the elite in the mines. So this mechanism is what actually defines a state, an early state, which we think about how a king what what defines a kingdom a king is this ability to control people and make them work for a, a, an elite society an elite class this is a, was accepted by everybody and when we first excavated there we just sent many 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 samples to be radiocarbon dated and none of them came from the egyptian period not a single one And uh, most of them came from this debated period of the 11th, 10th, 9th centuries BCE, 3,000 years ago, the days of Solomon, David and Solomon in Jerusalem. This was a major, major uh, discovery uh, based on radiocarbon, because uh, this was the difference between us and the previous expedition there. Uh, and then we realize that we, what we excavate is actually only this industrial context and we don't have their villages or their cities or anything like that. So it has to be, the conclusion had to be that we have here a, an example of a nomadic society, a tribal nomadic society that got together, created a coalition of tribes that controlled all of the Arabah from uh, Jordan, the, the mines in Jordan in the north to the mines in Timna in the south and also the Jordanian plateau and the Negev highlands. All of this vast area was controlled by a nomadic polity that was able to make people work for them in the for the elite in the mines and to produce vast amount of copper uh, and it's something that we would have never been able to reconstruct based on the Bedouin perception of nomads. So that is when I understood that we really had a major problem in our understanding of this nomadic phase of the people in this period including the ancient Israelites. The only difference was that I was lucky because just by chance they, this society in the south engaged in copper production which is very 
visible archaeologically. Because of these piles of slag that you see till today everywhere there. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And the mines, they scoured the, the, the landscape. There are thousands of mines that are very impressive. Some of them are more than 70 meters deep. It's really amazing. And uh, it's not surprising that until our project uh, and the American project in Jordan, uh, everybody accepted that it's only an empire that can be behind these mines. But now we really have more and more dates and we know that the Egyptian phase was very minor and the big uh, production happened after the Egyptians left, after the collapse of the Egyptian empire, what we talked about, and the opportunity of the local people to create something significant in the region. So in the south, it was around the copper mines. Uh, They produced copper in a much higher intensity than during the, this Egyptian phase and it was all controlled by the local uh, tribes that probably had a king heading this nomadic kingdom nomadic kingdom so until our recent work this was an oxymoron this was something that could not be discussed in the in, in scholarship a nomadic kingdom during the biblical period. Nobody had even imagined this possibility. And now I'm saying that in the south we have physical, direct evidence that a nomadic kingdom was there, headed by a king. We identify this with, of course, biblical Edom that was in this region. Uh, we, uh, Of course, according to the Hebrew Bible, David conquered the Edomites and put garrisons all over the land. Now, not only that we know that people were in this region, we also have a good reason for why David went to this remote desert area and put garrisons. Of course, he was interested in the lucrative uh, industry and the ta- taxing this uh, copper production. But this is the land of Edom, even according to the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Solomon, David's son, he built a port in Elat, Etzion Gaber, Elat, in the land of Edom. It says this explicitly. Okay, so let's talk about the structures that we actually do see and have been excavated. Let's start with Jerusalem. There's, of course, in the city of David, several structures that are under uh, contention for their dating, number one, and also what their purposes are for. So there are many who would claim that part of these structures are actually related to the time of David and Solomon. And then there are others who, taking a different dating approach, and this is a huge argument in archaeology, would say, no, this is more like a King Omri or uh, Ahab of the Bible, if you want to put a date on it. But it kind of sounds like your theory is smoothing the way between both of them, that maybe you can say, okay, so maybe... David's kingdom was originally here, but maybe it transitioned into these structures by the time of uh, Omri. Is that, am I reading you right? Absolutely. It's a kind of, my approach is different than this big debates about the dating of uh, uh, stone structures. It's for Jerusalem. David's palace in Jerusalem is very contentious. If it's you don't know, uh, early 10th, it's David. But if it's 9th century, it cannot be David. And of course, the arguments about this, the, the, the Solomon's gates in Megiddo, the structures in Megiddo, Hatzor, and Geza, it's like huge efforts were invested by archaeologists to date them precisely. But and, why? Until why? today, I would say, because until today, my answer I, to you Yes, why they that? are so... I, my, my question to you is why they are so... Why they invest so much? Why is it so interesting a uh, question for them? Okay, couple answers for you. Uh, number one, fundraising, because anything that's connected to the Bible will get more fundraising. True. But number two, 
the Bible is our touchstone. So, of course, you want to connect it to somebody who is, you know, a glorious, uh, though quite complicated leader, such as King David. You don't want to go to Ahab or somebody like that. You want to have it connected to the ultimate king. Right. This is part of it. And also, of course, that that for for the archaeologists and biblical scholars, uh, the, the main argument is about the real historicity of the text. And the assumption is by everybody, by uh, scholars from Jerusalem and from Tel Aviv, by the minimalists and maximalists, everybody does, has the same, the same assumption, which is that if you have big structures, if you have a stone palace, if you have a wall with a gate uh, dated to the, to, to the time of David, you really can say that there was a big kingdom. And if you don't have, you cannot say that there was any big kingdom there and the entire biblical story is completely a myth or it's a huge exaggeration if you accept even the existence of David and Solomon as historical figures you would say that they were you know small uh, mafia leaders in the hill country that nobody heard about them etc this is the main main reason why they are so uh, there was there was there was so much effort to date these structures precisely because the implications of the dates, because of the consequences. If it's dated to the 1000, we can say, okay, David was here, David was strong. If it's not, if it's dated to the 9th century, it means that the 10th century is left without significant stone buildings and immediately it means that there was nothing in uh, the biblical dis- description of this magnificent kingdom that can be true. Because a king needs a castle, obviously. Exactly. Yeah, now I understand where I'm coming. Exactly. I, I love one of the phrases that you have in one of your articles, which is the idea that archaeology is the high court, the supreme court of uh, proving history or not. Right. And what you're saying essentially is the absence of evidence doesn't mean that this kingdom didn't happen. What what we're seeing here is that maybe it's just a different kind of kingdom than we've been conceiving of forever. Absolutely. I think the kingdom that we've been conceiving until now is a straw man. And this is what uh, I think is the most interesting part of my profession, actually. Looking at the methodology looking at how we construct history out of the stones uh, and understand that uh, there are many, many challenges, much more than usually we admit even that exist. And when we um, take into this the nomadic component, we understand that not only that the challenges are great, but also that the role that archaeology took upon itself, being the high court, is not something that it could have done or it should have done because we just don't have the tools to be the high court when we're talking about this early phase of Enomai Kingdom being in this region. Some of these uh, recent publications of mine about that uh, were done with uh, Dr. Zachary Thomas, uh, who is a young scholar that, uh, you know, we have found together a lot of examples from world history and ethnography. Uh, and and we, we also demonstrated that in world archaeology, uh, the complexities of ancient societies is much more recognized than in this uh, Levantine archaeology, I would call it uh, that way. And we we suggest that the reason is because of the Bible and because the fear of many scholars to, um, 
to sound unscientific. Because if you give like uh, some room for interpretations that are not based on physical, t- tangible evidence, something that you can see, a big stone palace, you can be blamed of being a fundamentalist and trying to prove the Bible in many different crazy ways. But on the contrary, the way archaeology in the entire world moved forward is by understanding the complexities of ancient societies uh, and the possibility of tribes, nomadic people, to achieve a state-level society, a state-level society. This is something that uh, in the 60s was uh, also not an option in world archaeology because there was kind of the evolutionary model that uh, tribes are in the bands and tribes are in the lowest tier and they cannot be compared to state, which is the upper tier of social evolution. And this is still what we are doing here in Levantine archaeology today, while in, while in world archaeology, it completely changed. Now it's it is considered obsolete, completely obsolete. And uh, uh, understanding that nomadic tribes in certain places, in certain conditions, could have achieved uh, kingdoms, states, is something that is uh, accepted and well recognized in world archaeology. And I'm saying it's not every day that these nomads achieved kingdoms, but this particular period in the history of the region is the period when we should expect these nomads to achieve states. And this is exactly what the Bible is telling us. So uh, we... We, we, we cannot, you know, evaluate the biblical story with tools that are not appropriate for, for the story. We, are, we, we were uh, investing efforts not in the correct place because it wouldn't give us the answers that people think they, they should or they would because we're talking about people with a nomadic background and these nomads were not Bedouins like today. But I would argue that even if you look at contemporary history of our region, Okay, take, for instance, the Emirate kingdoms or Saudi Arabia or even Jordan, that you see examples of tribal kingdoms who became perhaps accelerated by vast amounts of money, became sedentary quite quickly in our modern era. This rapid sedentarization is only its a modern phenomenon. Of course, we live in a modern world. Uh, it's very hard to... Uh, on the contrary, I think that even if what looks to us very fast, it's not that fast. We talked about uh, Bedouins that still have tents in their court, uh, in their yards, and uh, and we have uh, Bedouins today that are not willing to move to cities that were built for them. This is all over the place. Where we worked in Fainan, in Jordan, there was the, this this situation. They, the Jordanian government built a stone-made, stone-houses village, and most of the population were not willing to move there easily. So even though it looks like rapid, actually it, uh, it, is, it's re- it is rapid relative to uh, you know, historical periods, but it's still not very fast. And in historical periods, it was much, much slower uh, we see it in uh, historical descriptions from the N- Nabataeans and others that this is something that takes many, many generations. Even the Amorites that you've mentioned, there were a, a few generations of uh, kings dwelling in tents before they started to uh, live in uh, urban centers. And also when some of when they started living in urban centers, it was only some of the population, not all of them, which is a very different way to look at history. And it's something, it's like this um, black matter because we don't see this uh, 
people that were uh, tent dwellers. And you don't really hear a lot about them because the history was written from the perspective of the urbanites, from the perspective of the city dwellers. We all, all, almost don't have accounts of the nomads themselves. Actually, one of the good sources to maybe learn about them is the Hebrew Bible, because this 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 history is, is one of the only that were, was written by the nomads themselves, or the people that had a strong nomadic background. Of course, maybe the scribes that put everything in writing or edited the volumes were already uh, with an urban culture, and they sit, uh, but they still appreciated this early phase of being a, a nomad. And this is something that usually, you know, if nomads were really lowly and not very powerful, nobody would be proud of this background. And of course, there is a lot of debate and uh, rejections from uh, usually the older generation of scholars that uh, it's very hard to change the way you do archaeology for so, so many years. I think the way we are, have been doing archaeology in that regard of doing history out of the shirts and understanding this nomadic aspect didn't change uh, since the early days of biblical archaeology, since, since the days of uh, William Foxwell Albright in the 1920s. The same idea is that he had about nomads that could not do anything, that had to be in the margin of history, uh, is still today. I would like to bring us back to the holiday. Our time is short now. To the holiday at hand and and bring up something that you said earlier in our conversation, which is that perhaps we came from a more modest tradition. And we're going to, for the next week, some of us at least, eat and sleep in these home, do-it-yourself built huts that are very modest usually. Well, not always, but often yeah. modest. And and I really love this idea of modesty for this holiday, which brings us back to our tent-dwelling history. Absolutely. This is, a, this is part of our culture. We came from a nomadic background. Uh, these tribe, uh, nomadic tribes had their own culture, and then, you know, they created a coalition of tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 13 tribes of Israel. They... Uh, um, you know, ruled a vast area in the hill country and they established a kingdom while still, you know, some of them still being nomadic. And for sure, for many generations forward, the nomadic culture it was part of uh, what they were and what we are still today. And this brings us to us, to the archaeologists and the scholars today, biblical scholars and mostly archaeologists that we also have to be much more modest. And I think this is the real uh, lesson from all of this new information that we, we have from recent years, because we don't have answers. I cannot tell you if really David was, as depicted in the Bible, ruling all the region from uh, Lebanon to Egypt. I don't have physical proof, but I think archaeology cannot provide this proof. And because of that, we as archaeologists have to be much more modest in our historical conclusions. And this is something I think we have to take uh, forward and uh, continue the discussion with the scholar, with other scholars, and with the public, because it's very interesting to everybody to learn about our past. A hundred percent. Erez, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Amanda. Matovu <laughs> Ohalecha Yaakov. משכנותיך ישראל. 
How good are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel? This verse, taken from the book of Numbers, is the beginning of a prayer recited by Jews upon entering into synagogues and places of worship. This remnant of the Jewish people's nomadic past is an anchor throughout the ages around the world and, dare I say it, a reminder of it as well. Special thanks to Charlie Summers, who helps me with the What Matters Now transcripts. This episode was recorded at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. What Matters Now is produced and edited by the Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, Shalom. Shalom.